While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning, the text that, that was read is, is from uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 through 13. And at the conclusion of that text, it was actually a discussion that Jesus was having. At the conclusion of that text, Jesus reprimanded these folks because of their attitude and their and their statement. He said, uh, if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. He said that in Matthew chapter 12 at verse 7. He said uh, that I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So these two places that this concept is found or this statement is found in the New Testament, we're going to be talking about mercy. And in talking about mercy, we're talking about an emotion. And if we don't grasp that, that it's an emotion, then we're going to have a hard time understanding basically what the term mercy means. Hosea 6 at verse 6 is the text that both of these statements are taken from. I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. Now that term mercy appears so many times in the Old Testament, several times, it's almost a re recurring refrain in the book of Psalms. So for instance, in Psalms chapter 86 at verse 5, the text says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon you. So he starts out by saying, O Lord, you are good and you have a lot of mercy for us. In Psalms 100 and verse 5, it says, The Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, His truth endures to all generations. Then in Psalms 106 at verse 1, Praise the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Again, he, he introduces the idea of mercy by saying that God is good, and His mercy endures. It's mercy that does not end. In Psalms 118 at verse 1, this text appears five times in that chapter. In Psalms 118 verse 1, it starts out by saying, Give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, because His mercy endures forever. And then four more times, it's repeated immediately after this verse, verse 2, 3, 4, and then it repeats itself at verse 29. Four times, plus the introduction in this chapter, is the term mercy stated, and that is that God has mercy. Now, we have to define the word, but the term mercy is almost self-defining. It's a feeling that we have, and when we begin to think about mercy, if we don't think in terms of emotions, we're not going to understand what it is. If we just think of it as a, as a fact or a fiat of history or of philosophy, it doesn't, it doesn't actually mean anything to us. 
But when we understand it as an emotion, as something that you feel, not something that you know, but something that you feel, then it makes an impact. Mercy, if, if we define it, would say it's a feeling of pity or of compassion. It's something that I feel for you. And it's something that I feel for you because I'm getting some sort of a feeling from you. So when you're asking me for mercy because you've done something wrong, then I have to feel your need and then I have to feel compassion toward that need. I have to feel something for you before I can give you mercy. And you have to feel something before you ask for mercy. And what you're going to feel, of course, is that you've done something wrong. That you've messed up somehow and you have no way of, of overcoming the mistake that you've made. It involves understanding and sympathy for the plight of a person who cannot help themselves. Sometimes we get grace and mercy mixed up. And it's, as a matter of fact, it's sometimes the word grace and mercy appears together in the New Testament. Paul talked about grace and mercy when he introduced his letters to Timothy and then John and, and to Titus and then to John when he wrote Second John, he introduced his book, Grace and Mercy and Peace and so forth. So they, use, they, they combine these terms in tandem. But understand that grace is something that God gives you because you did not deserve it. That's grace. Mercy is something that God extends to you because you did something you do deserve. You deserve punishment. You deserve the consequences of your action. But He gives you something because you did something you shouldn't have been doing. Okay. There's a difference in the two. One is a gift and the other is a compassionate forgiveness that you're given. Now there are two examples that I think help us that, that we started out with. Matthew chapter 9 at verse 10 through 13, the one that we have uh, in, in the chart. And the other one was in the book of Matthew in chapter 12. But both of these illustrations, both of these concepts are there that help us understand what was going on. What was happening was, in the first context, was that uh, Jesus had been healing people. Jesus had been compassionate for people. And the, it was on the Sabbath day, and the people were saying, the scribes and Pharisees were saying, you shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath. He's having a meal with the disenfranchised, for one, in Matthew chapter 9. So he's there with the disenfranchised, which means that there were people who were there, they were poor. They were, they were the unfortunate in this life. They were not part of the elite. They were not part of what we would call today the elite or the upper class or even the middle class. They were, they were people that uh, had no prospect of a good future. They were people taken from the dregs of society. Jesus was eating with these people because Matthew had provided a meal for them and they all came to it. And the Pharisees said, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be having this meal with these folks. And Jesus said, he said, we ought to have mercy. God wants mercy, not sacrifice. Now, the, 
the uh, Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the lawyers and scribes were always trying to trap Jesus and make him appear as if he was doing something wrong. And the, the uh, epitome of all their complaints and all their criticism came usually on the Sabbath day. Whatever he did on the Sabbath, they were very concerned about it because they had a ritual that they followed, and it was very rigid. But it did not allow for compassion. So, when the poor were there eating, and when, the, when Jesus was healing the poor, and he was taking care of the, the distressed, then the Pharisees said, why can't you do this on some other day but the Sabbath? And they criticized him for it. Which meant that that they really didn't care about the sick, the poor, the disadvantaged. They didn't care. And that's what we're talking about. When we talk about mercy, we're talking about care. We're talking about compassion. These people didn't care. But they did want to keep what they thought was the law. They said, okay, here's what God said to do with the Sabbath. What they forgot was, that the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so that the Sabbath was given, so that God said, you need to relax on the seventh day, rest. But he didn't say anything about them not eating. He didn't say anything about them not doing good things. He said something about them not following their occupations. So when in Matthew chapter 12, when the disciples are going through the cornfields and they were eating, they were not plowing the ground. They were not gathering up to make a harvest. They were not taking corn to take to the market and make money. They were simply eating. They were satisfying a normal hunger. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained about that because they didn't care whether these fellows were hungry or not. They didn't care. They'd probably eaten, but they didn't care. And God said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. God cares. And so the problem that they're having is that they did not believe that God was involved compassionately with our problems. That all they thought that we had to do was, if God gave us some laws, we'll just keep those laws, but we don't really have to get involved. We don't have to get involved. Mercy from God means that He's caught up in our lives. He has compassion on us. Mercy from God means that when our heart aches, His heart aches. Now we know all of this because of the fact that Jesus came to this earth. God sent Him here to show how much He cares. So we know these things. We know that He cares for us, that He feels for us. And he, of course, we feel for him, or should. But he cares for us. He feels our weaknesses. And he feels when we have, uh, have problems. He, when our heart breaks, his heart breaks. When we feel all alone, he stands by us on our darkest nights. When we feel neglected and worthless, he tells us that we, we own the world. The, the earth is ours. When we feel hopeless, he says there's a bright tomorrow coming for you. He gives us a future because he knows we need hope. He cheers us when we are despondent 
and in the depths of despair because he knows we can get low. He wants us to get high. And that's why he sent his son Jesus to us because he cares and he has that compassion. When we talk about God's mercy, we're, like I said, we're talking about a feeling. And sometimes that makes us nervous when we talk about a feeling. Without feelings, without an emotion, we have no attachment to God at all. That's what was going on with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and those individuals who were religious, but only religious on the outside, making the cup and platter clean on the outside, but on the inside it was dirty. So, the problem they were having can be a problem that we're having. And that may be that we are not sure that God is involved in our lives. But He is. You know, He's he's involved in, in all of our lives. Now, someone says, well, is He involved in everybody's life? Well, yes, He is. Yes, He is. You know, Paul was preaching to some fellows in the, in the city of Athens on Mars Hill. And he told them, he said that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not very far from any one of us. Acts chapter 17, verse 27. In Matthew chapter 10, and, and this, this really gets us into something that's very interesting and very, very necessary for us. God knows how you feel personally. I mean personally. He knows how everyone on this earth feels. And He knows where you are. He knows how your heart beats. He knows all about you. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31, it says, Are not there two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Now, God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through. He knows about your troubles. As a matter of fact, He says the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than any sparrows. God knows things. You say, well, how can He know all of that? And the reason He can know that is because He's God. He's not man, He's God. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 35 through 37, when we're talking about the heart, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every word that comes out of our mouth, God hears with everybody. We are not independent. God is involved in our lives. And there are several reasons we can give for this. Because God gave me life. That's why He's involved in my life. He's involved with me. I'm a distinct soul. I'm an individual soul. I have an understanding mind and I have a feeling heart. And the very blood in my veins coursed through my veins and through my body because that's how God designed it to do because God is my creator, and therefore He is totally involved in my life. He made me, and I am His. Regardless how I'm behaving, sinner or saint, I belong to God. I belong to You belong to God. You belong, you're, there's no exception to that rule. He's involved in your life then, 
Because He cares for you. He's care, he cares for you. He's involved. And He is connected. God is connected. How is He connected with me? How is He connected with you? Well, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God is connected. Now that tells me that I am like God in nature. I am, he, he's connected to me. We're together. He said at the very beginning, let us make God in our image. Now how's he made me in his image? There's no, uh, no end to the possibilities that a human being has, basically. And the reason is because we're in the image of God. That tells me, if God is connected to me, if we're connected, if He made me in His image, then we have an extreme connection. Somebody says, well, I don't care about this person over here because they're not in my family. We're not connected. But we are in the family of God. We're, we're in God's family. The human family belongs to God and came from Him and is created in His image. Now, evolution, there is no such thing as evolution. I know that a lot of people will, will oppose that. But evolution has never happened. And it will never happen. It has never been proven. It is absolutely of no value, of no value scientifically or medically or historically. Evolution has no place in society. None. There is no such thing as a, as a vestigial organ. There's no such thing as a missing gap, because the gap is always going to be missing. There's no such thing as a progression of involvement in, in animal or material. There's no such thing, and the evolutionists know it, but they teach it nevertheless in our schools. But they know that there is no such, there's no way that it can be proven, and certainly there's no such thing as theistic evolution, because we are created in God's image, and God did not crawl up out of a dark pool of matter on the surface somewhere and develop. We are in God's image. He made us in His image. And when we try to explain ourselves and try to explain the fact that He did not create us, then we're trying to then we're making an effort to, to say that there is no God and we don't have a connection with God. That's exactly what evolution teaches. There is no connection to God. These are feeble efforts to explain God away and to disconnect Him from our lives. Now, this, the disconnection comes in this way. Evolution, whether it's theistic or natural evolution, taught by Charles Darwin, was the basis of racism, basically. Of a, of, of a feeling of, of superiority, of egoism. And that we can prove because Adolf Hitler dedicated his book Mein Kampf to Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution. The superiority of the species, the, the, uh, 
the idea that the fit survive. That's the idea. That if you, you can be better emotionally, physically, whatever it may be, but that was the basis of Hitler's effort to try to develop an Aryan race superior to all other races. And that's racism. And he developed that because of his concept and his feeling and his, and his uh, conviction that Darwin's theory of evolution was correct. And it certainly is not. Now, what Jesus said, however, if, he, if we want to know where we came from and how we got here and what we look like, we look back at Psalms chapter 82 and at verse 6. And there the text says, I have said unto you that you are God's because you are the children of God. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10 at verse 34. We are the children of God. We are His offspring. And that's what the text says in Psalms 82.6. We are the offspring of God. We are related to the God of heaven. We are related in our mind through our ability to think. We are related in our mind and our ability to think in abstract terms and to file material away in our memory banks and in our emotions to have a sense of being in our soul and to be able to connect to God and to our family and to everybody else in this world because we are in the image of God. And one other thing we have to keep in mind, we are in the image of God and we're not, we're not the product of some mindless evolution theory. We're in, the, we're in the image of God because we know that we exist. I know that's a philosophical statement, but it's still true and you can prove it. You know, because you are the image of God, you know that you personally exist. Now that's what man can do. That's what God can do. But that's not what an animal can do. That's not what a created being, another created being can do. That's what a man can do because he's in the image of God. Sometimes we pinch ourselves because we think we're in a dream. You can also pinch yourself because you, you can prove that you, you exist. That you exist as an individual. And that's because God made you in His image. And God is committed to you. He's committed in the sense that He's not going to let you go without a struggle. He's not going to turn you loose. He's not going to say, okay, I don't care. That's, we're talking about mercy. And we're talking about mercy in the terms of the fact that He said, I'm involved in your life. I care about you. Now sometimes we think God's involvement isn't apparent to us. Sometimes we think that God is involved, but it's not working out the way we want it to. But God will take care of our needs, but maybe not our wants. God will take care of what we need, and when the final chapter is written in our book, and the book is closed, it will all come to light. But in the meantime, God is involved to the extent that He'll make sure that things work out for us as we want them to, or as we need them to. And He is connected to us. He's connected. He knows who we are and we know who we are because we are part of Him. And He's committed. When God first created man, He just let us go. Went our way. We're going to go where we want to go. Do what we want to do. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, it says, God saw that the, witness, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And so they had the flood. There was a flood. But it said that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when the flood came, there were eight souls that were saved in the ark. God was committed, but then God let us go. Then he brought us back through Noah. But he's committed now. He's committed. He's not going to destroy this world of the flood again. He's not going to get us into an ark, into a boat. He's not going to have us in a bomb shelter when it comes. God is committed to us because he's not going to let anything happen until every one of us are safe that want to be safe. He's committed. It says, It became him for whom all things are made and by whom all things belong in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. So, and that's through suffering. He sent Jesus here because he wants us to be saved. We are he is committed to us and he's committed to saving us and he's persistent about it. He's he's uh, patiently waiting for every last soul and this is mercy. He's waiting for every last soul that will attend to him and listen to him before he closes everything down. He's waiting for every last soul that will be saved to be saved. Why? Because he's persistent and he's patient. In 2 Peter 3 at verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Have you ever seen a fellow late for work, either portrayed, either personally saw it, or saw it on TV or in a movie, where he's running for the bus because the bus has already left? And he's yelling, wait, 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 please wait, hold. He's asking for mercy. The bus is leaving. Hold the bus. I'm coming. Well, that's what God is doing. He's holding the bus. He's waiting till we get there. That's mercy. Why is he doing all of this? Because he cares. Because God cares. He's involved with my life because he cares about me. He knows when I'm hurting. He knows what difficulties I'm having. He knows all about me. He's connected to me because He created me. And we're, we're the same in terms of my soul, in terms of my heart, in terms of my life. We're the same. He made me in His image. And He's committed to me. And He's, he's waiting for me. Now, that's how God feels about me. How do I feel about Him? When I get mercy... Well, obviously, I'm going to be relieved. If, if I'm in a bind, and if I'm in, in difficulty, let's say that I'm behind on my rental payments, that I'm getting ready to be evicted from my premise. I, I, I couldn't make the payments for my rent. And I'm so far behind that I'm drowning in debt. And I can't make my payments. And the landlord comes, the owner comes, and he says, You know what? Let's just square everything up and you don't owe anything. Stay where you're at. Now, how do I feel? I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like a, a, a great weight has been lifted off of me. My goodness, I feel good about that. I'm relieved. I have a relief. And that relief comes because I have been the recipient 
of mercy. This guy cared about me. He cares about me. If I'm a criminal, now the point we have to make is that I owed that money and I should have paid it. Rental. But because of this man's mercy, he relieved the burden. It wasn't that I, I, I didn't deserve to be cast out. I did deserve to be thrown out because I hadn't been paying my rent. But how about the criminal that is condemned to death and at the last minute before he goes to the electric chair or the gallows, he is reprieved. He gets reprieved. He needed to go to the gallows. He needed to be electrocuted. But someone said, you know what? We're, I'm going to forgive this guy. I'm going to extend him mercy. How does the fellow feel? The last minute, the last hour, the governor says, somebody says, the guy that's going to pull the switch, the guy that's going to drop the hatch, he says, you have been forgiven. You don't have to die. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to feel relief. It's like chains have been drawn, dropped off of me. When I re- de- decide finally that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, I've read the gospel and I've heard the gospel. Somebody's told me about Jesus and I know about him and I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I've done things that I should never have done in my life and I'm carrying that burden around. And when I'm told, if I will repent, if I will look back and recognize that I've been wrong, and I'll repent and I'll confess that Jesus is the one who can help me, I can confess His name, then when I'm baptized and I come up out of the waters of baptism, because I believe that Jesus resurrected, I'm going to resurrect with Him, and all of my sins have been washed away, how do I feel? I'm relieved. I feel like the chains have fallen away. I feel like the burden is lifted. I feel like I don't owe anything anymore. Why? I'm feeling something. I'm feeling God's mercy. He felt something toward me, and now I'm feeling that mercy. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 becomes very obvious to me in the light of that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Those who know they are sinners, when that sin has been forgiven by the mercy of God, we feel relieved. And we also feel gratitude. We should. Those who are the recipients of mercy feel gratitude. It's something you feel. And the gratitude is, why me? Why does God care about me? Why does He even want? Why does He even think about me? Who am I? Why would anybody notice that I'm suffering? Now I think I'm talking to a lot of people that have gone through life feeling like they have no value in this life, feeling like they're less than human sometimes and that there's no hope for them and that that life just doesn't have anything to offer and that I have nothing to offer to life but you know what God cares about you and he is concerned about you 
And because of that, we feel gratitude that he even steps in and says, I love you. I care about you. I, I'm, I'm thinking about you. We can, we, can, uh, we can duplicate that in a lot of different ways, but the, the main way is when we're asking, who cares about my situation? Who really cares about me? I'm nothing. I haven't done anything to improve anybody. I'm just nothing. And yet God steps up through Jesus and says, you know what? I care. I care about you. This is the story of the cross. You are special. You are worthwhile to God, and you mean a great deal to Him, and He wants you with Him, and He wants you with Him forever. He cares. Don't ever think that no one on this earth cares about you, because God does. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in, in the due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so our gratitude says, and it extends into appreciation, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you care for me. I didn't do anything, and I didn't, I didn't make myself valuable to you, but you did this because you care for me and you love me and I am grateful. So I'm, appreci I'm appreciative. That's how I should be feeling. That's the way I feel. God has granted me mercy. Now that means I don't have to repay my debts. I appreciate that. I certainly appreciate that. I don't have to make up for all the bad things that I've done. I can start all over again. I can, I can have a clean slate. I'm free. I can see my future unclouded. There's no mist over my future now because God has it. And all I have to do is live day by day and let God take care of me because He loves me and He gave me mercy. He said, Bill, it's okay. Let's go to heaven. Let's go. And I don't have to be suffocated in my dreams because God cares for me and He's shown me that. His mercy has shown me that and I am grateful for that. And I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I have a clean slate. He's my life story. I've been forgiven because He loves me. In Matthew, in Luke chapter 7, verse 41 through 42, Jesus had had a, a supper with, in the house of a fellow by the name of Simon. And this, this was not Simon Peter, it was another Simon. And he was a Pharisee. And Jesus had invited, had been invited to that supper. And while he came, when he came in, there was a woman that came. You remember, and Mary Magdalene, she washed his feet with the tears, with her tears, and, and dried them with the hair of her head, and she poured the ointment upon his feet. And uh, they, the people listening and watching what was going on looked at Jesus and said, if you'd known what kind of woman this was, you wouldn't let her touch you. But then he, 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 he took Simon apart and he said, he said, uh, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. He said, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? What he's saying is, which one will appreciate the most for what he did? One owes this great amount and the other owes a small amount. Who will love him the most? Whatever you bring to Jesus, he's going to, he's going to take care of it. 
whatever sins and problems that you have, He's going to forgive those. He's going to have mercy on you. And the last point, and we're talking about our response to mercy. How do I respond to God's mercy? Reciprocity. Reciprocity. That means, what do I care? What do I care? Now, I said in this lesson, I said, look, God is committed to you. I mean, He's, he's thrown everything in, into taking care of you. He's, he's, uh, he's connected to you because you belong to Him. Well, well God, is, God is making sure that everything is going to go well with you. He, he has mercy on you. So he's, he's, he put, he's put everything in you. And you're saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, I'm relieved. I'm grateful. I appreciate it. But what about, do we care about anybody else? What's going on? What's going on in the world? What do I care? I'm saved. What do I care what's going on? What do I care what people are doing? What do I care what people are saying? Jesus told of these two men again that had a member in, in, uh, in one illustration in uh, chapter 18 of Matthew. There were two men. One owed 10,000 talents and the other owed 100 pence. And he forgave one. And uh, that, that fellow had someone who owed him a small amount. And he wouldn't forgive him. He didn't care. The Master cares for us. Do I care for you? Do I care anything about you? Why am I involved in your life? Or should I even be involved in your life? We're told in the book of Luke in chapter 3, not Luke, I'm sorry, the book of Colossians in chapter 3, that we should have bowels of compassion. Bowels of compassion. A heart of compassion. What do I care about you? That's the question I have to ask myself. If you're in trouble, if you're having a hard time, if you're poor and struggling, what do I care? What do I care? If you're having emotional difficulties, what, what's that to me? If you're sad, if you're despondent, if you're depressed, if you're suffering, Emotional difficulties? If you're suffering physical difficulties, what do I care? Unless you're one of my family, my kids, my parents, my relatives, what do I care? You see where I'm going with this? I'll tell you what. When God extends mercy to me, you know what it does? When God puts His mercy in me, it comes through me to someone else. It should if I don't feel mercy toward those who are marginal, toward those who are disadvantaged, toward those who are suffering, toward those who are having heartbreak and agony and problems in their neighborhood, in their family, whatever it may be, if I have none of those feelings, then something happened, something short-circuited, short-circuited. God gave me mercy, and He intended that that mercy should flow through me and not stop with me. So something is going on. If I don't have, mer if I do not feel something for you, when you get into a difficulty, James two at verse thirteen says, "He shall have judgment without mercy, 
that is, he will have judgment on me without mercy, that has showed no mercy. So God's judgment will fall upon me without mercy if I have not shown mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. I'll tell you what, we have to be very careful and we can analyze ourselves. If God granted mercy to me, and He has, and I've felt it, and I've, 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 been, I've been the recipient of it. He's forgiven me. He's cleansed me. He's raised me up. He's given me hope. He's brightened my day. He stood by me in my time of trouble. And if that doesn't come through me to you, then something's wrong. Something happened. It got short-circuited. I need to feel that mercy for you. God have mercy on us all. And let us all have mercy on each other. Thank you.